there are two occasions for which I felt very prepared emotionally, mentally, psychologically. And in reality, when I went through those experiences, I wasn't prepared at all. The first one was my marriage. I had read some books. I had received all the premarital counseling that was suggested to me. And I was a pretty smart guy, I thought, and I kind of knew women at my ripe old age of 19 years old when I got engaged, and I thought, I got this figured out. Turns out, I didn't. I didn't know anything about it. I was talking to the guy who did my premarital counseling about my, my marriage once, and he said, well, well, if you think about it, Ben, women have it a little easier than the men have it. And I thought, that sounds interesting. Tell me about that. He said, well, for women, it's kind of like a dog. Marrying a guy is kind of like getting a dog. You only have to do three things. You got to feed them, you got to praise them, and you got to play with them, and a dog's really happy. Right? Yeah, it makes sense. And for a man, though, it's kind of like getting a cat. He says to me, how do you make a cat happy? I said, I don't know. He said, exactly. Nobody. No, I was not prepared. I was not prepared for my marriage. I, I grew up, I'm still getting prepared for my marriage. The, the, the second environment and experience in life that I thought I was greatly prepared for, and by the time this happened to me, I'd already been a pastor for a while, serving in some churches and had given several messages. The second event was parenting. I had, I thought, incredible preparation and readiness in my heart and in my mind for my parenting. In fact, already at that point, I had given three or four great messages on how to parent well. The problem was I'd never had a kid. <laughs> I have four great messages on how to parent and no kids. Today, I have four kids and no great messages on how to parent. Today, we're going to talk about it though. And I'm going to share with you a couple things that I've learned as we launch in a brand new series called Family Matters. And today we're gonna to talk about parenting and here's why. I know that not everybody has a kid and even if you have kids, they're in some you know, various stage of the parent-child relationship. But the reason we're gonna talk about it is because so much of our lives are impacted by parenting, either ours to our kids or our parents to us. And in the Bible, this is a, a really big deal. And the truth is, in sincerity, I am not equipped because I have done it perfectly to stand up here and tell you how to do it. The most humbling messages I give every year are around parenting and family and marriage because I'm not great at this. I'm a journeyman. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a, I'm a traveler. I'm a learner. I'm a student. That's the best I can offer today is the perspective of a traveler one who hasn't quite reached the destination, but I'm a serious traveler. It's something that's very important to me. And more than just me knowing stuff, I have from our heavenly father who loves us so much, I have a great gift in the Bible. You have it too. We have a great gift from our heavenly father that talks a lot about healthy family. And what's really interesting, if the Bible is full of stuff for healthy families, and it, and, it, and it really is, what's really interesting, and to me, one of the most important realities that gets glossed over is that the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, when it talks about family, almost exclusively talks about very unhealthy families. Used to, when I was growing up in church, people would say to me, Ben, when you become a man, you need to be a biblical husband, and you need to have a biblical family. And then I read the Bible and I realized that Bible husbands and Bible families were jacked up. They were messed up. 
I mean, in the book of Genesis alone, you have, for instance, the father of our faith. That's what the Bible calls Abraham. You have Abraham on one occasion saying to a local king, um, this lady that you got eyes for, that's my sister. And if you want to be intimate with her, go ahead. The problem with that story was it wasn't his sister, it was his wife. And he was afraid that the king would bring harm to him. And so he just kind of gave his wife to the king. That's jacked up. I don't care when anybody says, that's in your Bible. It's right there in the book of Genesis. There were a group of brothers who got together and said, we don't like that brother over there. Let's kill him. And one of the brothers says, you know, that seems a little extreme. Let's not do that. Let's do this instead. Let's sell him into slavery and at least get some money for it. That's jacked up. Those are the families of the Bible. And it's almost as if the Bible starts with real earthly broken relationships and then takes the rest of the Bible, the remaining 65 books of the Bible, to explain how God is going to do incredible work in the lives of families. And so if you come in here today and your family isn't all put together, like you're like me, and there's a lot more journey to the destination, well, you're in a good place because you align with the families in the Bible. You align with almost everybody else in this room. In fact, the only people who have it really, really, really put together with family are walking in a little bit of denial, all right? The truth is, is we all have stuff. I wanna jump into our session today talking about parenting to kind of set the tone. And again, about 10 years ago, if I were preaching this, I would come out with four or five things that you and I must do if we wanna succeed in our parenting. Now, I can't really do that today. But what I can do is point you to a handful of truths that is likely to put you in a place where you'll see God dramatically work in your family. And as I get older, what I'm learning is, is that more than just a set of skills or knowledge or, or, or a strategy to be successful, what we need, in my opinion, is a radical dependence on God. A radical dependence on God. And the good news about that today is, is that God is available and wants to. And when you pray for your family, where you, when you carry a burden for your kids, where you're concerned about the future, you're aligning actually with the heart of God for the people you care about as he carries with you a concern, a love, and a compassion for them. So why don't you do this for me right now? Why don't you grab out your message notes? They look like this. They were on your seat. On the front of it is some information about our groups and our grow experience, groups and grow. Those are the next steps that we're encouraging people to take today. And you're, you're very fortunate because you are in, in front of you right now is the very first for this fall um, giving out of our catalog for our groups. And so if you get bored today while Will's singing, I know you won't get bored while I'm speaking, but if you do, you can, uh, you can pull out this group's catalog and write the number of the group you're wanting to sign up for just by putting it on your Connect card at Next Step C, and it's a one-step sign-up, and you're there. And on the inside of your message notes, if you'll just open it up, you can follow along with me as we start talking about family matters and the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting. I must have, in the course of my life, sat through some 50 messages and preached a handful of my own on how to be a good parent. But it's rare for me to remember a time when somebody said to me, all right, not just how do you parent, but what are you trying to get done in parenting? 
What's the goal? Like, what are we shooting for? And I offer this to moms and dads of young kids in hopes that you'll take to heart some stuff that took me a while to understand. And I offer this to parents of older kids, even adult kids, in hopes that you'll realize that your influence, no matter where they are in their journeys, your influence is powerful and you shouldn't give up. And I offer this to people who have no kids to maybe help you understand what your parents either did or did not do for you and help you understand how your heavenly father, no matter where we are in that journey, wants to come alongside of us and be for us the parent that our earthly parents can never ultimately really be. So what is the goal of parenting? I want to give it to you in some language that's just, you know, English and understandable. And then we're going to turn to the Bible and we're going to pull these principles right from the pages of our Bible. All right. So here's the goal right there at the top of your message notes. You can grab the pen and follow along. The goal, I believe, is to gradually transfer a child's dependence away from the parent or the parents until it rests solely on God. I think the goal of parenting is to transfer a child's dependence away from the parents until the child depends totally upon God. Now, if you were in a, in, in a social environment and a community was dealing with a drug epidemic, and they were to talk to you about the goal of parenting, you might hear that the goal of parenting is to equip your kids to say no to the temptations that are around them. Or if you were in a, a school environment, you may hear that the goal of parenting is to set your child up for their best educational experience, which will give them the opportunity to live the kind of life they want to live. Or the, the, the challenge is, is that there's only a handful of places in this world Church is one of them where I think they talk about the real and the, the ultimate goal of parenting. And so for our church family today, those of you that are walking this journey with us and you're celebrating with me in your heart that we're 13 years old today, I, I, I want to I be crystal clear with you. For the next few weeks, this family matters thing, we're not simply going to learn a handful of techniques and strategies, although you'll probably get a few. What we're doing instead is we're reminding ourselves that the answer to every problem in life is the Lord. And every challenge you've ever had in parenting where you were trying to parent a kid, every problem you ever had in your family where you were parented by a group of people who probably weren't perfect and fully put together, the answer to all of that is in a relationship of love with your heavenly father. So Four Corners Church family, the goal of your parenting then has to, in all else that you might do, you have to make sure, we have to make sure, I have to make sure that my kids understand the spiritual center of life out of which everything else happens. And if the center isn't centered, it's very difficult for the rest of the stuff to work, even if you've been successful. I've known a handful of people who were successful in life, and when they got about 40, 45, 50 years old, they discovered that the ladder of their success was leaning against the wrong building. They climbed it, but they didn't get where they ultimately wanted to go, but they thought they were getting there. I don't want that to happen for you in your parenting. In fact, I think if you'll get the center right and understand God's heart for you, for your kid, for your family, well, I can promise you it won't be easy and it won't be perfect, 
I think with the authority of God's word, I can promise you that it'll be better. It'll be better. That if we can get the center at the center, it'll be better. And this is very hard to do. It's very hard to remember the real goal. Because kids are so demanding. And our hearts are so raw and open and vulnerable to the, to the pieces of data, the input we get from our experiences as parents. Now, I've never had so many wonderful highs, like just incredible days. And such incredible lows than in my parenting. That, that's where it has shown up the most because nothing has my heart naturally like my kids have my heart. And when they smile, my world put, feels put together. And when they cry, I just want to hand them to their mom and say, fix them. <laughs> fix this. I don't know what to do. And so sometimes in the middle of all that emotion that is there, and what happens is I forget what's at the core. And so when God was putting together a family, and he was very honest in the book of Genesis that family's hard, and he takes the rest of the Bible to talk about how God is going to redeem the whole world. He's going to redeem individuals. He's going to redeem families. He's going to redeem creation. He's going to make the good that went bad good again. One of the things he really focuses upon is family. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, just a few pages after Genesis, God is already starting to set the broken world right. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a series of verses that we're going to look at that became important. In fact, they became the identity markers for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That little group of people who God said to Abraham, remember the guy that was messing up his family? God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. The whole world's going to be blessed through you. I'm going to use you and your family and your descendants, your descendants to bless the entire world. And in Deuteronomy, we get a picture of how God begins to set things right. And in the language and the principles of that Old Testament book, there are some things that are just as real and powerful today as they were back then. And this particular set of passages in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can go there on your phone. Most of them are in your message notes. You can go there in a paper Bible if you want. That, that's good too. That's what I use most of the time. When you read these, they became the identity markers for this family that God was going to use to bless the world. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 1, or chapter 6 verse 1, here's what our Bible says right there in your message notes and on the screen. These are the commands, the decrees, and the laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, listen to this language, your children and their children. This is a family passage. Their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. Now, that language of fear is not language that we enjoy so much in our modern context. Most of us believe that fear is bad. The only people today loving fear are the people who made that movie, It, that's out right now that everybody's watching. Because evidently people will pay a lot of money to get scared, you know, kind of artificially, right? But in most every other context, fear is bad, you know, and safety and comfort is good. Except when it comes to spirituality, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, 
It's talking about a deep reverential awe and the reality that God is God and we're not and that he gets to set the law. It's similar, it's not all that different to the little twinge of of panic that happens in my heart when I'm speeding down the highway and I come over some little hill and I see a specially colored car parked on the side of the road. There's an instant, uh, there's a fear, there's a reverential awe, there's a respect for that specially colored car that I see down the highway. That's not all that different than what's being talked about here. That we understand that there is a lawgiver and his laws are good and for our good. And when we follow it, life goes better because he's the one that put it together anyway. He's the one that wired it up. And when we follow the instructions given to us, it's good. And when we don't, there should be a certain, hey, before I do this, I just want to remember that if I go against this, if I go against the way God has designed the world and the way he's designed me and what he's told me I'm supposed to do with other people, when I go against this, it might bring pain to me. That's not a bad fear. It's kind of like I used to try to teach my kids about a hot stove. And I won't name the child, but my son, Max, was very difficult. And we kept saying, stove hot, don't touch. He didn't believe us. So straight up, he just put his hand on a red hot and just, you know, he got those nice little marks on his hand. Now, it was the last time he ever did it, but he didn't believe what we were saying and he had to learn it the hard way, right? The fear of the Lord. And you can go to a lot of churches and we, we think there's a lot of great churches in Cincinnati, and we're just one imperfect church trying to create a healthy family here, a spiritual family. You can go to a lot of churches, and they don't talk a lot about the fact that God not only loves us, but he has a standard for us that he wants us to live by. Now, if you're our guest today, by the way, as I talk to our church family about the kind of families God wants to make, you're invited to go on this journey with us for the next five weeks, this being week one. I, I hope you come with us. But it's not just advice for those of us that are following Jesus with our lives. These are the things that God says, don't be stupid and ignore what I'm telling you. I love you. It's for your good. It's for your good. Don't ignore it. You should have a certain reverential awe, even a fear that makes you want to take this stuff very seriously. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, I think the first thing that we discover is that God's going to set for us a set of principles by which our families, our kids, and our kids' kids are going to be blessed. And some of you are carrying extra baggage today because your parents ignored, perhaps they were ignorant of these principles. And when I have forgotten them in my own family, like in the raising of my four children, it's brought difficulty to us. Let's talk about three biggies, all right? Number one. Love your God. That's the blank there. Love your God. Look at how Deuteronomy chapter 6 unfolds. This is what the Hebrew people even today called the Shema. It is the statement of identity for their faith family. And every Christian today inherits this long line of wisdom contained in these words. Hero Israel. Remember, the word Israel here is the name of a person. His name was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons. And so when the verse begins with hero Israel, it's saying, listen up, Israel's family. Listen up, Jacob's family. Listen up. Listen up, Jacob's family. 
Even in the New Testament for Christians, we're told that our faith passes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, whose name in Hebrews chapter 11, we're reminded, is changed to Israel. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love is an incredibly powerful force. In fact, most parents that I know, I've met a few perhaps who didn't, have not a love problem with their kids. That's not what's the problem. In fact, most parents, many parents that I know, kind of have a, a Beatles philosophy of parenting. They, they draw from the apostles, Paul and, and, and Ringo, um, about parenting. And their philosophy is kind of all you need is love. And man, that, there's so much good in that idea, except it's incomplete. It's not all you need is love. You must have love, but there's some other stuff you need too. Anybody who has ever been in love and stepped into a marriage only to discover the, the difficulty of being married, even when love is present, understands that sometimes something more than love is needed. Love has to be expressed minimalistically, at least through something like time and kind words and and appropriate touch. And love has to, at the bare minimum, be expressed or just the feelings of love aren't enough. And sometimes even love expressed is not enough. No, love is not all you need, but you must at least have love. But I have found for most parents, the challenge, even in my own parents, isn't that I didn't love my kids. I love them. I don't know how I could love them much more. And I can encourage you all day long to love your kids, but that's probably not the challenge most of us are having. When the Bible talks about loving God, it talks about them loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. There's the idea that there's dimensions to the kind of love. The word love probably doesn't by itself encapsulate all that goes into loving our kids. And it certainly doesn't describe all the love that our Heavenly Father has for us. So when we talk about the goal of parenting, of transferring dependence from parents loving their kids and kids loving their parents and depending on their parents, transferring that over to a God on whom the kids depend, we probably need to go beyond just the simplistic understanding of kids loving God. What do we mean? Let me give you two big words. Maybe you write them, write them in the margin. Talking about loving God with their mind, which is a certain amount of information, but also loving God with their heart, which, which here talks about the, the emotion and the affect and the will of a child and how they turn that towards the, the spiritual stuff. When I think about my goal in developing a heart and mind of God for God in my kids, there's a certain amount of information that they're going to need. And so my ability to put them in environments where they learn a certain amount of information is of paramount importance. They have to be exposed to simple truths contained in maybe some of the songs they've been taught. In fact, while we're in this room, right now there are kids in other areas of this building and they're learning simple Bible truths through story and song that go something like this. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. That's really good theology, by the way. It speaks to the authority of Scripture and how it contains truth. It speaks to the objective reality that God loves us, and it speaks to the personal acceptance of that truth. This I know. 
That's really good theology. And as that child grows from our preschool area over here all the way up through our elementary area on this side of the building, we want that basic theological truth to grow so that they come to know just how wide and high and deep and powerful is the love of God expressed through Christ Jesus. So there's a certain amount of information. And so as, as a parent, if I'm kind of checking through a handful of things, I want to ask myself, am I putting my children in an environment where they're exposed to a basic information about Jesus? But the other part of this is the idea of the heart. And here's what I know, that no amount of information alone is going to convince a kid to live their lives in dependence of God. The Bible tells us, Four Corners, I hate to remind you this, but it's true, that the human heart is broken, that it is spiritually dead, that in and of itself, it can never acquire and live the whole life that God has for us. The heart of God will never be expressed fully in a dead, spiritually dead heart. And so our children aren't just needing information, they need a heart transformation. Our children have to not only have information about God, they have to have an experience with God that resurrects a dead heart and makes it live. This is what the New Testament talks about when it says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can be at work in our mortal bodies, bringing to life the things God wants for us. So when I think about my parenting, as I'm encouraging you to think about your parenting, what environments are your kids getting right information and what environments are they being challenged to give their hearts over to God? My parents, I think without having any formal philosophy, they came to Christ late in their adult lives, later, about 35 years old. And we didn't have a church experience. I was about four when we started going to church. And my parents' philosophy was very simple. Um, we had a kind of a, a drug problem in our house. My parents believe you just drag your kids to church every time the door is open. I got drugged on Sunday morning. I got drugged on Sunday night. I got drugged on Wednesday nights. And every time there was a revival, I, there was prayer times, there were celebration events. Or every time we got to, And the idea was if we just put them in the environment enough, it's going to be fine. But that's not enough. It certainly helps because they're working the information side. But your children, my children, you know what they need more than they need? Just information. They need the opportunity to say, my heart is spiritually dead and no amount of love from my parents will resurrect it. Won't. Your love for your child will not save your child's heart. The experiences you provide your kid will not resurrect a dead heart. Only God through Christ can do that. And so our parenting has to be gospel-centered. It has to be about the love that Jesus expressed in his death and resurrection. And I'm encouraging you parents who call Four Corners Home. Our guests, you can kind of watch us talk about our core values here if you want. I think you might want to listen to this as well. I'm encouraging you to make your parenting not just about success and information and experiences. I'm encouraging you to make it also about the gospel. Because you can send them to the right schools. You can give them the best environments. You can buy them the right schools right clothes. You can keep them away from the wrong kids. You can keep them in safety all you want, and it still won't resurrect a dead heart. Every single human being ever born in this earth, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, is lost without God. That includes your kids. 
The number one thing parents are supposed to do is introduce their kids to some information and information about God and give them an opportunity to respond to that information and realize that without Jesus, this life and eternal life is going to be dark. And so it's not just about the right schools, the right environment, setting them up for the right job or even financial security. All those things are fine in their place, but none of that will ever take the place of a heart of your child turned towards God. At one point, my daughter was about four years old and she liked balloons as most kids do. And so we had been to some place and she walked out with a balloon on a rope, you know, a little, you know, little ribbon and it's floating in the air. It was awesome. A few days later at Pops, she wanted a balloon. Somewhere in a drawer, I had a few balloons. I went over to a balloon. I blew it up, gave her the balloon. And she looked at me and said, it's broke, meaning it doesn't float. And I said, I know, I, I, I blew it up. It, you know, it's, it's a balloon. She looked at me like I was the stupidest person that had ever been born. It wasn't the last time I got that look, by the way. <laughs> Middle school was rough, rougher on me than it was on her, all right? And, and that, 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 that balloon thing becomes a bit of an analogy of what I'm talking about. See, the balloon that I blow up, the, you know, the way you make it float is you keep popping it, right? You keep kind of slapping the bottom of it, keep it up in the air. As long as you do that, it floats for a little while. Then you got to pop it again. Then you got to pop it again because it keeps coming back down. It's kind of the way I feel like sometimes as a parent. Like I'm, 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 I'm trying to keep my kids up. I'm trying to, you know, be important. And I'm just constantly, and, and I can't do it all the time. And the, the balloons, they, they fall. There, there's two ways to keep a balloon in the air. You keep popping and keep slapping it up. Or you can fill it with Helium. And it tends to stay up by itself because helium is lighter than the air around us and it floats. What I'm talking about when I say about a heart change with your kid, it's the difference between constantly trying to slap them to get the right thing, do the right thing, obey the right stuff, or have a heart change towards God. In which case, they still need a certain amount of popping from time to time. time, to time. And I'm not talking about you know, corporal punishment. That's a different discussion. Don't get mad. Hey, everybody right here, it's okay. It's all right. You don't have to get mad yet. And send those emails directly to me, all right, at will at fourcornerschurch.com. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right, all right? So you can keep popping them all the time and trying to get them to obey, 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 or, or they can get filled up with helium, in which case they need some direction. Now, the goal of our parenting, even for our adult kids, is that we, to the best of our ability, use our influence to get them to have a vibrant, real connection with their heavenly father and to realize that Jesus died on a cross for them. Not the world only, but for them personally. It's about loving your God. And parents, let me tell you the best way to do that. And this is the one that humbles me the most and I'm almost embarrassed to say it to you. <laughs> you model it. You don't so much teach it as it gets caught. It's not so much taught as it is caught. They watch it. You still have to give them information and talk about it. But they watch the gospel being lived out in their homes. And I think that the gospel shows up in most people's homes through a particular activity that we find in our home we have to do a lot. Through apologies. Like, apologize a lot. I say to my kids from time to time, mom and dad are sinners. We're not perfect. 
And yet God sent Jesus to forgive our sins and to keep us in a relationship with him. And this moment that you've observed is not who we're called to be. Oh, now that's humbling. Because I know in just a few weeks they're going to remind me, you're not perfect either. And I know, I know that's going to happen. And they're right. But the gospel doesn't say, be a perfect parent. And when you're a perfect parent, your kids will be perfect kids. No, that's the culture. That's your school. That's your sports team. That's all the stuff that grabs our attention that puts God second place. Now, the gospel says, be a broken person in a relationship with the perfect Savior. And that's the goal for you and for your kids. They don't need you perfectly put together and model your perfection. They need to see your brokenness and see a perfect Savior behind you. Very different. You're a horrible savior, by the way. I am a horrible savior. I'm horrible. I'm not good at it. There's only one, and his name was Jesus. And only Jesus is a perfect savior so good that he can reach down and grab hold of your child's heart. It's a big deal. Love your God. Number two, we'll buzz through the rest of this. I gave you some stats there. Let me fill in the blanks for you. If mom and dad, for instance, one of the ways you can model is you can go to church. If mom and dad both went to church, 72% of kids tend to go as adults. If only mom went to church, 15% of kids grew up in that home. If dad only went to church, look at this number, 55% of kids went to church as adults. If neither mom nor dad, 6% of kids go as adults. One of the ways you can model, let me give you a question for honesty here. For you, for you, is it all of your heart for God or some of your heart for God? Because your kids will pick up. They'll be able to read the temperature of your heart for God just because they live with you. So love your God. Number two, develop your family. Develop your family. Deuteronomy 6, look at this. The commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. In other words, in life, you're teaching, you're developing parents. Your job is to develop your kids, to understand the things of God. And bringing them to church is a part of that, but it'll never do it all. It can't, but you can train them. And in fact, that's why Proverbs 26, I think one of the most important, at the same time, one of the most um, challenging passages in the Bible. Proverbs 22, verse six, train a child in the way he or she should go. And when he's old, he'll not turn from it. By the way, this is a proverb, not a promise from God. This is the way life usually works. But it doesn't guarantee perfection because your child's heart is broken and rebellious. That's why they need a savior. And even if you're perfect and train them well, they may not, or they may go through a season where they're not soft-hearted to the things of God. And it won't necessarily be because you were imperfect, although I'm sure you were, just like I am. But the emphasis here is on the training piece. And that comes from the, the Hebrew word kanak, It's to initiate, to dedicate, or to train. So I want to give you seven things you can train on. I'm not going to unpack these. Let me just give you some things you can train your kids on. Right? You can, number one, you can train them to manage God's money. 
There's a lot of pain that happens in families because money isn't managed well. And the Bible's full of this stuff. That's why at our church, on the back of your sermon notes, there's an opportunity for you to sign up for Financial Peace University and learn God's values in teaching about money and quit fighting about money in your home and get on the same page. And if you're our church family, you've heard me talk about this now for five weeks in a row. And some of you had arguments this week about money and you still haven't signed up. It's okay. But a year from now, you're still going to be fighting about money. Well, you can get training on this and you can then turn around and help your kids not make the same mistakes you've made. Number two, you can get training about carefully selecting friends. It's important. Number three, you can train them to watch their words. Wouldn't it be powerful if yours was the last generation, mom and dad, that was careless with their words? Wouldn't that be powerful? The Bible teaches you how to do that and what to say about words. And how to deal with it when you've used the wrong words. Number four, you can train your kids to be responsible. I've joked about this, but I'm really not joking. In my family growing up, there were two cardinal sins. Don't be lazy and don't lie. Like I could kill somebody as long as I did it with great effort. And I told the truth about it. My dad would be like, son, we need to do a little bit of work. But if I lie to him, he's like, son, get away from me. That's kind of the way it worked. It's a big deal in our family. So take in responsibility, and honestly, friends, if there was ever a time in our culture where we need to teach people to take personal responsibility, I believe it's now. It's very hard to help a child. The Bible says foolishness abounds in the heart of a child. How do I know? I know that because the Bible tells me. I know because I was a kid. Taking personal responsibility for words and actions and the, and the weight of life that a person's supposed to carry is a big deal. We can train them to guard their minds. One of the most recurring challenges that we have in our church families that shows up from time to time is people, men and women, filling their minds with garbage, with smut. And it shows up in the breakage of intimacy in their families. And so we teach our young men and young women, guard your mind in Christ, that the seeds you plant today will spring up and bring forth fruit. It will. So guard your mind. Train them to be generous. It's part of the value system that makes family healthy. Instead of always saying, I've already done mine, you do yours. Instead of focusing on fairness in a family that's done well, you focus on generosity. Number seven, train them to fear God. And you can talk, we can talk about this. In fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a handful of these things, kind of best, best, uh, you know, best practices on some of these things. But you got to develop your family. Let me ask your parents, do you realize your job is not to help your kids succeed and make money only or to have the best experiences? It's also about helping them develop character, who they are more important than what they're going to do. Better than earning the ribbon or the trophy in sports is the character of their heart. And sometimes you can do those together. Sometimes you can't, and you'll have to choose. So it's love your God, develop your family. And then letter number three, leverage your partnerships. Leverage your partnerships. One of the things that I think has been an important part of my kids' development is there are other adults in their lives. And those adults have made a powerful difference. This Friday, there's an adult who serves in our student ministry, took my son to lunch. I'm so excited about that. 
It's a good man. And he sat down and had lunch with my kid at, at uh, some restaurant down the road. I just can't remember it right now. But I dropped him off and McAllister's. My son came home talking about how awesome their sweet tea is and why don't we go there more often. And he talked about the conversations they had. It's a partnership. My kids have been in this church and student leaders and kids leaders have invested in their lives. Why? You got to have partnerships because it's too big for you. And there comes a season in a kid's life when they don't listen to the authority of their parents in the same way anymore, but they'll listen to other groups of people. And so there are all kinds of stats about this, and I'll share some of them with you as we move through this sermon series. But let me give you one right now. If you came to church virtually, you know, every week, it'd be about 104 hours a year in church where there are partners here to work with you. And at home, there's still some 1,560 waking hours a year that you can interact with them. It's a lot of, a lot of time with you. When they're teenagers, sometimes that doesn't always go as smooth as it could be. What Jill and I have found is that a real, real robust support network around us. And so my kids are the product of their parenting, and most of the bad stuff in their life is directly connected to that. And they're also a product of the other people and environments in which they've been. And a lot of the good stuff in their life comes directly from that. I just know this, parenting is too big for me. In the same way that me being a godly husband to my wife is too big for me to do on my own, I need other men around me. Parenting is a too big a job. And when I talk about parenting like this, I almost get a little overwhelmed. Here's why. Because I'm reminded just how serious the stakes are and how big the job is. And I start feeling a little incompetent. And I am. So uh, a, a few years ago, I was in a, in a situation, and I have a, a, a problem with recurring kidney stones. And um, it's largely diet-related, and we can talk about that if you want. But what happens is, like a lot of issues in my life, I have pain. I go get a kidney stone removed, and I am very good with my diet for about a year and a half. And then Coca-Cola starts calling my name. I hear it whispering to me in the dark places of life, sweet tea. And I, you know, I go bad. And then sure enough, six months, eight months, nine months later, another kidney stone. One particular uh, moment I went in for a kidney stone extraction. I've never been able to pass one. They always get hung up. It's very bad. And um, I feel sorry for every mom that's ever giving birth. But you should also feel sorry for me because I promise you mine hurts more than yours does. And so I used to like go in and just feel so bad for moms. Now I'm like, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway. So I go in to get one removed, and they give me a shot of medicine, and like no relief. They give me another shot of medicine, an instant relief. Oh, whoo, thank you, Jesus. I'm good again. It's all good. And my wife and, my two, and two of my boys, are, or three of my boys are there, and they decide they're going to go get some breakfast down the hallway. And about halfway over to get breakfast, uh, my wife says, I'm going to go check on Dad and make sure he's really good. So she leaves the boys there, and she walks back, and when she turns the corner and looks in the room... I'm blue, vomit coming out of my mouth. I flatlined, overdosed. Uh, I didn't know it. Obviously, I was just in la-la land and went to sleep. I was gone. And so my wife starts screaming. Nurses come running and code blue, code blue, and they bring the crash cart, and they bring me back. Well, let him mess with the guy's head. Let him mess with the guy's head. And so I'm thinking, what, what happens to my kids if I, if I didn't come back? 
and, and it was almost like God said to me, you know, Ben, if, if you're not here, um, my grace is sufficient. I'm powerful enough, and I'll take care of your kids. And I felt a certain amount of peace about that. You know, it took me a while, but I felt a certain amount of peace about that. But then the, here was the thought I had. You know, I can kind of conceptually at least trust that God will take care of my kids if I'm not here. But can I trust him to take care of my kids when I am here? Or am I always going to have to be the one laying in bed at night awake worrying about them? I'd love to be able to hire a staff person to worry for me. You know, you lay awake at night wondering if we can meet budget. You lay awake at night dealing with that staff issue. You lay awake at night dealing with that church member is upset. I don't want, you can't do it. But can I trust God enough to love and work in and call to my kids even when I'm here? Or do I have to carry it all? Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm discovering in my parenting in this stage. That God loves my kids more than I do. His heart for them is bigger than my heart. And the greatest gift I can give my kids is to show them a vibrant faith in their dad and mom. Not a perfect faith, but a faith that is alive. And I hope that that catches on to them. And I don't have to be responsible for all the good in my kid's life. God will do a big part of that, and he'll do a lot of the heavy lifting. In fact, a lot of the times I need to kind of get out of the way and let him do it. And I want to offer you that if your family isn't in a fully put-together place today, you're biblical. God knows. God, God's grace and God's power and God's love can make up a lot of that space. And can you trust him to love your kids more than you do? Can you trust his wisdom to be better than your wisdom? Can you trust his laws to be better than yours? Can you trust his people to be a relatively healthy family to come alongside your kids? Or is all the other stuff that you're going to manage for them somehow going to be better? That's where I am. And over the course of the next four weeks, since we've got one down now, we're going to talk about how God's heart for our families can be on display. And I don't want you to leave feeling beat up. I want you to leave feeling hopeful that no matter how many mistakes and how broken your family is, God isn't done yet. And he still redeems. And the God that we sing about that sent his son to a cross, that same God reaches out to your kids, no matter where they are and how old they are and how good you were. And his love for them so far supersedes that the best thing you can do for your kids is to remind them how awesome God is. And around here, we think that when you have conversations important like this, it's better than just being stirred about it, you should probably move forward with it. So I'm gonna ask everybody in the room to grab out their connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. This is where we try to put into action some of the things we've been talking about. I talked about the fact that it's important to have your faith catch in the life of your kids, but it's possible we have a few adults in the room who don't have a relationship with their heavenly father through the work that Jesus has done in giving his life on the cross and being resurrected from, from the grave. If that's where you are today, if you don't have a relationship with your heavenly father through the work of Jesus, I wanna give you a chance to change that right now. So we provided a pen for you and that connect card. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and my Lord. This is the gospel that we can't save ourselves, but Jesus is pretty good at it. 
we don't just need a doctor. We don't need a prescription. We don't need some legal maneuvering. We don't need an infusion of cash when it comes to our spiritual conditions. We need a savior. And so the Bible says in John 3, 16, that God sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We'd ask you to take your pen, and if you're feeling stirred, check next step A. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And in that moment, when we pray about it in a second, you can use my words, you can use your own words and talk to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I trust you. I'm not going to be good at it, but to the best of my ability, I'm going to follow you. If you're willing to do that, we think God will literally take your broken heart and give you a, a heart of flesh, a beating live heart that he'll develop and grow over the rest of your life. That's not just something he wants for other people. He wants it for you. You just check the box and in a few moments when our offering blanket comes by, you just put the card in there. We'll send you some information. You're not joining our church. We're not gonna hound you for money. Nothing like that. I wanna talk to you about what it means to be a child of God. Next step, B says today, I'm choosing to be baptized. Over the last few weeks around here, we've baptized 13 people who've said, I'm no longer on my own, but Jesus is leading my life. And they go under the water and it represents dying to the old life and being raised to new life with Christ. And we celebrate that as a church family. It's a major turning point in their life and we rally around them. And if you'd like to do that, again, check the box, put it in the offering bucket. Next step C is the one I told you about. It says, send me the link for the 4C group. And then there's a spot. You just write the number from the catalog, right on your connect card and you're in. And then you'll get all the information that you need. If you have questions, write the number. They'll give you links to go to. It'll answer some of your questions, give you a chance to talk to a real person about it. And you can get everything you need by one step today. Just write the number right there next to next step C. Next step D. It says, send me the link for the Grow Experience. So on Groups and Grow, what we're doing is we're operating as partners with you. In a group or in a growth experience, we're partnering with you, with you, with your family. And if you want to know about our Grow Experiences, just check it. There's four different experiences. The experience number one or step one is happening in just a week, and a, a week or so. And so you can just check the box and we'll get you all those dates and times. Next step, E says, I'll make it a priority to attend all five weeks of the Family Matters series. And the good news is you're 20% done. You, you got one done, so 100% attended so far. And you're, just, you're not saying I'm absolutely gonna be, I'm gonna make it a priority to have some important conversations about family. Now, if you'll hold that Connect card in your hand, just go ahead and hold it. In just a moment, we're gonna put them in offering buckets. I have some folks that are gonna be getting up from their seats right now, and they're gonna come forward and prepare to receive tithe and offerings. This is that point where people who call this church home give back to make the ministry happen here. If you're our guest, this is not for you, all right? You don't have to give us anything. Your presence is a gift to us. We're grateful. But if you call this church home, this is the point at which you can begin to get your stuff together and help support the ministry here. It would be a real miss today if I didn't say thank you to people who have been faithful to make this church happen for the last 13 years. We're gonna turn the corner into our 13th year. And I want to tell you, I know a lot of people think that's an unlucky number for us. It's going to be a good year. It's going to be a real good year. We're going to help people grow. We're going to help families have a relationship with Jesus. But we couldn't do any of it if many of you weren't faithful like you are. It's not an overstatement to say lives have been changed 
you literally, Four Corners Church, you changed my life. I'm, I'm better for having been a part of you. There are literally marriages that have been restored. Right now, there are seven deep water wells in Uganda still pumping out fresh water for the last seven years because you built it. There's a birthing clinic in Botswana that this church built. There's an orphanage in Kerala, India and a church planting ministry, some 50 pastors in, in, in Western India, Southwestern India, who are connected and being supported. 40 young ladies who are being cared for Several in college and three have already graduated college because you paid for their food, their clothing. You paid for their education. You gave them shelter. Each one of these young ladies were considered disposable. But because of your generosity, they have a life today and a purpose and a relationship with God. You're literally changing lives by your giving. Thank you. Thank you for faithfulness for 13 years. There's gonna be many more. Let's pray about our next steps and God's using this money to do his work in this world. Bow with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love our kids more than we do. And in fact, you loved us more than our parents loved us. And while our parents could never be perfect, you're a perfect father. You've never thought an evil thing about us. Your heart is always good. We come before you, Heavenly Father, today, confessing, acknowledging, and, 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 and focusing on the fact that we can't be all things that our kids need. So we come to you, Jesus. And we ask that our kids would come to know you and to love you deeply. That they'd see in our lives, not perfection, but they would see our own dependency upon a savior. Father, I wanna thank you for the next steps being taken in this room. People who are saying yes to Jesus, even right now. They're saying, Jesus, forgive me, wash away my sins. I trust the work that you've done on the cross and in your resurrection to secure my relationship with my heavenly father. I can't do it alone. So I receive by grace what you offer. I thank you for moms and dads and family members in this room that are saying they're gonna go on this journey with us for the next month and talk about your heart for families. God, I thank you for each guest in this place today. Maybe some of them only came to, to eat some good food. God, if that's all, we're still grateful. But I pray, Lord, that seeds have been planted today. Seeds of your love for them. Now, Father, would you take our offerings that we give today and would you make it go far and wide here in North Cincinnati and literally around the world, accomplishing your good purposes. Thank you for letting us be a part of what you're doing. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.